Good morning. My name is Art. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Roswell. Uh, like Mike, I too have three kids, 54, 52, and 40. So it's been a long time since we've told them the Zacchaeus story, but we did at one time. Last week, Matt, um, and, and for me, it was in a very compelling and yet a very loving way, Matt, uh, walked us through the catechism question and answer one, which we recited a few moments ago. What is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own. That we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that immediately engaged us in a plot that raised all kinds of questions, which we're going to answer as we move through the next 51 questions. And one of those questions is, okay, who is this God that he says he owns me? That I belong to him totally, entirely, irrevocably. And our question and answer, too, speaks to that. So, let's read it together. What is God? Answer. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Now, it'd be very difficult for me to touch on all of that answer this morning. But if you think back over the past few months, Matt and Steve and I have talked about God and his attributes multiple times, um, and some of the times in, in quite some depth. So this morning, I'm going to concentrate on the first and the last sentences. The first one is, God is the creator and particularly the sustainer of everyone and everything. And the last sentence, nothing happens except through him and by his will. Now, this is what the theologians over the centuries have called the providence of God. It's the truth that he sustains everything that he created, and he governs it all to act to fulfill his purposes. The New City Catechism we're studying is based primarily, a number of others, but primarily on the Heidelberg Catechism, written by a team of men in Heidelberg, Germany in 1563. And in answer to the question in that catechism, what do you understand by the providence of God? It says this, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, and then it gets very earthy, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Her name is Helen Rosevere. Uh, she was a missionary doctor to the Congo from 1953 to 1973. She had been there for four years and had just within the last week or so begun to treat lepers when the, when the story takes place. She had ordered some brand new meds on the market for leprosy, and very soon 10,000 tablets arrived 
at a cost of 4,320 Congo francs. She didn't have the money, but she asked God to provide somehow. Well, the end of the month came, and the mission's policy was that all the bills would be paid by the end of the month, and there was to be no debt whatsoever. And she had no money. And frankly, she felt cornered. The debt was about three to four months of her personal allowance, which for her was a fortune. But in her mind, that was nothing for God. So where was he? Well, as she went to treat patients the next day on the first day of the month, she admits to being a bit upset with God. But when she got home that day, she found an envelope waiting for her that had come in on the last day of the month, but had been delayed a bit in getting to her. And the envelope was filled with Belgian Congo francs, 4,800 of them. She immediately deducted her tithe, 10%, which came to exactly 4,320. John Piper, who told this story and knows Helen personally, by the way, said, now here's where the story really becomes incredulous. The total gift was made up of three gifts, one from a North American couple that she did not know, one from two prayer partners in Northern Ireland, and one from the girls' crusaders class in Southeast England. And the new North American gift had been on its way for four months, traveling from Philadelphia to London to Brussels to Leopoldville, and then up country to the little village where she was ministering. Every one of those transfers from city to city involved a certain percentage cost that was deducted. Yet at the end, the three gifts had arrived together for the exact total she needed. Plus, two of the gifts were designated for your leprosy work when at the time the money was actually given, she didn't even have a leprosy work. Now, this is pretty theologically provocative. Three groups around the world who don't know each other, each of them deciding to give, and each of them deciding to give a certain amount, and then the exact amount needed after deduction and cost of the tithe ends up with her. Each of those three gifts decided when to give. All three get there on time as one, and then it's held a day for, her, I think, her to stew a bit to see how much she trusts God. And she had prayed after its answer had been set in motion. Now, either this is a chance happening of infinite magnitude, or it's an illustration of nothing happens except through him and by his will. And all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, I want you to know this morning that I know that this is, a, this, is a, this is a tough doctrine to wrestle with, especially when it involves not good, but maybe bad things happening. And that can get very emotional very, very quickly. And you need to know that I'm no stranger to those emotions. Like you, have, I've had numerous experiences over the years in which I was totally incapable of logically 
reasoning myself to some kind of emotional and intellectual satisfaction. This is a tough one. I want to lay the biblical foundation for this truth, try to answer some questions, and along the way, touch on some other questions, but leave a more in-depth of the study of those particular questions to more appropriate, more appropriate times in the questions and answers in the catechism. For example, um, if God has everything planned like that, why pray? That's question number 38. We'll get to that later. Or if God plans and controls everything, is he to blame for sin? Uh, we'll address that when we get to number 16. What is sin? Now, I'm not sure when or who's going to do that, but I'm providentially feeling that I'll be out of town that week. Uh, we'll give that one to you, yeah. Many more people than we think actually believe in providence, even those who say they don't. How many times have you heard, or maybe have you said something like this, <clears throat> I guess it was just not meant to be? Or after a close call, I guess it just wasn't my time. Now, obviously, that's sloppy language. But it is also nothing short of saying that there is someone or something out there with some kind of ultimate control. Well, let's see how the Bible describes. I guess it was just meant to be. And let's talk first about a, a big overarching general truth, like in Hebrews 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or Colossians 1. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Now, here's how practical that is. Take the chair you're sitting on. If he stopped upholding that chair or holding it together, do you know where you would be? Tell me. On the floor. And Paul was clueless about this molecular theory type stuff. He didn't know anything about that. But that's, that's pretty minute. How, how about this one? The sun and its planets, which include us, of course, on Earth, are merely one of 100 billion systems that make up our Milky Way. And yet Isaiah 40 says this. Lift your eyes on, lift your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number. Get this, calling them all by name. Now that's either some kind of literary hyperbole or he does. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Hundreds of billions of them. That's what he is upholding and holding together. He's there running it. Theologian Millard Erickson writes this. If God did not continue to will actively the existence of his creation, it would cease to be. Catch this phrase. It has no inherent ability to persist. God is holding everything together. And if he got distracted for one moment, <laughs> but he not only sustains it, he governs it as well. He doesn't only keep it running, he, he directs it all according to a, a plan, his plan. I'm going to look at a, a few areas. First, let's, let's look at the animals. God's provision for animals is in literally, literally hundreds of verses in the Old Testament. 
But let's jump to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Then he says, are you not of more value than they? Four chapters later in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Cheap. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Again, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So these passages not only boldly assert that God is governing the animal kingdom and giving the animals their food, but also explicitly says that you and I are so much more valuable than the animals so that we can count on God then to do the very same thing for us, even to keeping track of the number of hairs that swirl down the drain in your bathroom sink. I don't know if you really believe that. How about the nations of the world? And again, we could go to literally hundreds of verses to show this same truth. Job 12. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Amos 3.6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Even, by the way, to Jerusalem a number of times throughout history? You see, we live with such a skewed view, I think, of how this nation-slash-political thing works we're not going to hear this on the 6 o'clock news. We're not going to have this flash up on our phones. We've become anesthetized to the ultimate cause in this area of life. We, th- we think men run this world politically. They don't. They make decisions. They make choices, real choices, And they're held accountable for their choices. But God's not running around after every one of them trying to catch up with what they're doing so he can sort of make adjustments to his plan based on the choices they have made in order to kind of hold the whole thing together. That doesn't describe an all-A-L-L-mighty sovereign king of creation like in Psalm 22. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. We just sang these words. You are the hope of every nation. I wonder how many of us even remember we sang that phrase. And you see, he can't rule over the nations like that if he didn't both design and execute the plan. Couldn't do it. J.I. Packer says this, divine sovereignty is the biblical picture of God as Lord and King in his world, directing every process and ordering every event for the fulfilling of his own eternal plan. Let's go to nature. And again, dozens of dozens of verses to choose from. Job 37. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. 
He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Or Jeremiah 14. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Uh, The Spirit has really rightly rebuked me over the past few weeks about verses like these. I used to read them and think, right, God's in control of all this stuff. I mean, he created them. He set up the laws by which they work, and they're just kind of doing their thing. So when all the conditions are right, it's going to rain, and when certain meteorological conditions merge, uh, most of which I'm clueless about, it's going to be windy. But that's not what it says. It says he sends the snow. It says he loads the clouds with rain. He says that he navigates the clouds to accomplish what he wants done. And I realized that I've been talking like a providence of God guy, but living like a deist. You know, God's like a watchmaker. He kind of put it together, and then he got it running, and he set it out there, and it's going on its own now, and he's off doing something else. But none of these verses support that. He's directing everything according to a plan. Um, it's pretty dicey theologically right here, because I'm sure that some of you right now are thinking of Louisiana or California. Natural disasters, which is described, which is defined, by the way, as a catastrophe caused by forces of nature. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get into something like this, I want to kind of try and protect God. But first of all, God doesn't need me to protect him. And secondly, I don't know how I can. Because if we blame it on forces of nature, you have to ask, who designed them and who, according to the Bible, controls them? Even if we water it down and say that he allows these kinds of things, that says he could have not allowed it, so isn't he still on the hook? And if in some way it happens apart from him, then he's not what we say he is, the almighty sovereign God. If one thing is not under his control, he is at the mercy of something, and that kills sovereignty. R.C. Sproul says this, if there is any element of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he no longer is God overall. God owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. Here's a tough one, Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now let's come closer to home. Let's talk about God's providence and uh, trials, sickness, death, and Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about his famous thorn in the flesh. Probably all of you have heard about that. Uh, He had evidently been caught up into the third heaven and saw some things that no man could even talk about. He then writes this in verse 7. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So here's the reason for the thorn, to combat conceitedness or to combat arrogance. It goes on, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Well, the thorn he gets is from a messenger of Satan. Clear. Next verse. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. See, Paul didn't like it. So he begged God three times to remove it. And that's okay. He's, he's our father, so we can ask him what he wants. We can't presume upon an answer, but we can ask him what our desires are. But verse 9 is God's answer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So the answer that time was, no, but I'll give you enough grace and power to endure it. So Paul responds like this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For, I, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So what does Paul say? He basically says, okay, you're God and I'm not. I'm going to trust you. Now, I don't have any idea how long it took Paul to get to that point. He is the Apostle Paul, but, you know, he was just a guy, too. So he could easily have lived with some heartburn over this for a while. So here's the question. Who gave him the thorn? Well, the answer seems to be a messenger of Satan. Who ultimately sent the messenger of Satan? Now, we want to say Satan. Then it asks the question, well, who sent Satan? And my answer is, God did. And why do I answer that? Satan would never want to keep Paul from being conceited. That's money for Satan. Get the apostle Paul to be conceited? Let me at it. But God would not want that. He would want to protect Paul from that. So who is using whom here? God is using Satan. God is the one in control. In fact, he's using, get to, he's using Satan as a sanctifier of the apostle Paul. God uses him as an intermediary cause for good in Paul's life to keep him from becoming conceited, that God reserves the, the ultimate control and causation for all of that himself. So you see, Satan is really God's lackey. He does whatever God tells him to do. God has him on a leash, and only God can shorten or lengthen that leash. And whatever, whenever, or however God adjusts the leash, it is always for the purpose of doing something good even though it may look not good at the moment. Think Job. Golly. God uses Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, fire, wind, took out all of his crops, took out all of his family, except for him. But he, was, he had to go to God. When he went to God, God brought this up first. He said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God introduced all that. He said, no, well, he just, you know, he's just a good guy because you keep blessing him. Well, God says, okay, but you're on the leash. You can do just this much. So Satan went and did that, and it, that's, the, that's the classic story in the scriptures of 
God and Satan and evil and death and all that sort of thing, how it all works together. Think you. I'm guessing you've had one or more trials, even tragedies, that when it was all said and done, you realized was good, even though when it happened, you'd had bet, you would have bet your life savings that it was only bad. I was talking with Nate Shattuck about all of this last week, and he pointed me to Jeremiah 32, 40. Uh, through Jeremiah, God was promising to bring his people back from exile in Babylonia, where he had sent them, by the way. A bad deal. God was in charge of that. And it says this, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. It says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What a, what a great promise. God, I said, I, I just want to do good for you. That's the reason you and I quote Romans 8.28 so much. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. On November 28, 1995, a dad and his seven-year-old son went out to the backyard to swing on a tree swing. This time the dad swung first. They heard a loud crack, and within, seven, within seconds, the seven-year-old boy was hit on the head by a large falling limb. He was medevaced to Scottish Rite. He was on a thin thread of life for three days in a coma for two weeks in the hospital for another six weeks and then released with a lifelong serious brain injury as the result. He's 29 years old today with significant physical, mental, and social challenges. The dad is my son, and the now 29-year-old is my grandson. This is also pretty theologically provocative. What made them decide to go out and swing on the swing? Why was this the day for the limb to be weakened enough to crack? This was a dad doing what you'd want a dad to do, play with his son. What if my grandson had gotten on the swing first? Why was my grandson standing in the only place where this kind of damage would occur? Why did he survive? In some cases, it would have been easier if he hadn't, believe me. Again, this is either a chance happening with just a lot of bad luck or it's an illustration of nothing happens except through him and by his will. And all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We've asked and been asked many times, what good have you seen come from this? Frankly, not much. But you know, God doesn't have to answer us on that. And that doesn't mean we don't hurt. Because 
as many of you here this morning know personally, and as our family is experiencing right now with Wendy's return of cancer to the brain. This truth asks a lot of us when bad stuff happens. We're not robots who feel nothing. You and I have been designed to grieve. We've been designed to hurt. We've been designed to emote. But we also have the opportunity that when we do, we're invited to take that hurt to our father who for some reason had that hurt in his plan for us. And if the Psalms teach us anything, it's that God is fully capable of hearing and handling our hurts and not berating us in the middle of them. There's nothing like, come on now, stop your whining. You know I'm going to make this work for good, for good for you in the end. Paul says, in fact, that you want to know the comforter of all comforters? It's God. He totally gets our hurts. I want to try and walk you through in the last few minutes what God's been doing in my heart about this really tough truth. Paul was talking to the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, and he says this, in him, God, we live and move and have our being. In other words, our, our very being, our, our, our very existence is totally dependent on him. Remember how God brought Adam into the world from the dust, and then he <sighs> breathed into him the breath of life. And it's almost like he went, <sighs> and God's still there for all of us. And all he would have to do is go, <sighs> and take it back, and you and I are toast. That's modern day for dust. Lest you think I'm exaggerating, listen to Job 34. If he, God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Now, that's where God has taken me aside and he said something like this. Now, I didn't hear these words, but this is what's coming out of my heart. Look, Art, what I'm trying to teach you is that I am God and you are not. And because of that, I have infinite prerogatives that you don't have. So I can do things that make total sense to me and are totally right and wise and perfect and just, but are just impossible for you to understand. And I know you can't quite wrap your head around this total control thing. So think deeply about this. In me, you live and move and have your being. And as I have over the last few weeks meditated and prayed deeply on that concept, here's what I found buried deep in my heart. If the universe is so literally dependent on him for its next millisecond of existence, like, poof. And if I am so literally dependent on him for my very next breath, He is the kind of being that I should just fall down before and say, don't worry with my question about my free will not squaring with the fact that you have everything planned already. 
Scratch my complaint about you choosing some for salvation and others not. Forget that I even asked why pray since you already have it planned. Just ignore that I demanded an explanation from you of how you can be responsible for evil, but even though it's not involved in your plan, but you really are not responsible for evil. And, and I'm still talking to God. If I am so totally dependent on you for the very next instant of my very existence, I'm guessing I can leave these questions that seem unanswerable with you and with Job say, I am of small account. I lay my hand on my mouth. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't dig into, pray about, meditate on, discuss, debate this with, with others. We should. But when I end up at the dead end of my reasoning abilities, which I will do on some of these issues, I must then bow to what the Scriptures say and submit to the truth that he is God and I am not, and that his thoughts are just not my thoughts, and his ways are just not my ways. I am a human being locked in to finite, imperfect, human being ways of trying to understand infinite, perfect, God being ways of doing things. See, I like, I like you try to logicize this. By the way, that is a word I looked it up. But logic is not the issue here. Being is. The question is, what kind of a being are we dealing with here? See, logic is tied to our human beingness. But there are times because God is God that he just goes beyond logic. It's called mystery. And it's actually defined as a religious truth that is incomprehensible to reason. See, my choices are real. They're real. Even though they're part of his plan. Do I get that? No. What is that? It's a mystery. It's, it's incomprehensible to reason. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the Trinity. How about that? Providence one week, Trinity the next week. And I get both of them. That's what they do to you when you're old. <laughs> now, is the Trinity logical to you? You had better answer absolutely not, or you'll be the only person on the face of the earth who has ever not answered that way. But I dare say that fewer of us struggle to believe the Trinity than what we're talking about this morning, right? Now, why is that? Well, for us, practically, the Trinity is it's kind of out there. You know, it's kind of at a, a distance for us and, and distance from us. And, and we've been told that the Trinity is a good thing for us, uh, even though we, many of us don't really understand what the Trinity is all about, but it was, it's good for us. And it doesn't seem to impinge on our personhood, on our sense of being in control or our, or our sense of self-determination. Oh, it's not logical, but it doesn't touch us. But when we talk about God controlling every detail of our life, all of a sudden that gets very, very personal, especially if something happens to us that we are pretty convinced is not good. I think so much of this comes down to E.W. Tozer's statement. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I am so far from getting who God is, really is. For, for example, if he is infinite, 
You ever thought about what infinite means? I mean, it's inexhaustible. It's, it means you go down there, it's bottomless. You, you never get to the bottom of it. So infinite in his being, his knowledge, his power, his goodness, his presence, his love in everything. Then believing that he ordains all things and everything is really a no-brainer because his infinity in all of those characteristics it takes to do that means there's no end to his capacity to do it. So if in ordaining all things and everything, he came up against an issue that was really sort of tricky, like ordaining evil yet remaining, remaining totally blameless for the evil, which the scriptures teach. His being has an infinite storehouse of knowledge and wisdom to be able to draw from to make that work and have it make sense. Maybe not to us yet, but to him. So God has prerogatives that we don't have because he has attributes that we don't have. I take us back to what Matt was talking about last week. In question one, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer, we're not our own. That we belong totally to God. Body and soul, that's everything. Life and death, that's everything. To God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not all about me or you. This whole experience we call life and death is all about God. He's planned it. He's running it. He'll finish it. And it is for his glory. But when we bow to his plan and believe the virtually unbelievable because of its being such a mystery that our, our senses just don't grab it, when we believe that and reflect his glory, glory in the middle of his plan as he works it out, we are then the most satisfied and fulfilled that we will ever be in our life. Now, when something bad comes into your life, it's really hard to, it's hard to see that, isn't it? It's hard to believe that. But that's how God designed it all. When he is the one who is in totally control of everything and we live that way, life is great because that's the way we were created to live. And that God, our Father, reaches out and says, oh, my beloved, trust me. What I do may not seem fair or good to you, but someday you will see that it was. And I think he says something like this. In the meantime, Look to the cross and see what I had to do for your salvation. You're the beneficiary of something else I did at the time, which at the time did not seem fair and did not seem good. And it was all done because I love you. Let me show you what I mean. Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, catch this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's doing. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was their choice. They killed Jesus. But whose plan was it? See, it's not only my life and your life that God the Father has all planned. He did exactly the same thing with his own son. And the details of that in the scriptures prophesied ahead of time are incredible down to the detail. And it's not only my and your life that God brings sufferings and trials into. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says this, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And it's not only my life and your life that gets negatively affected by sin and by sinners, evil and evil men. God used lawless men to kill him. 
kill him, who were held accountable for what they did, even though it was God's plan. Plus, think of all the factors God had to make work for this to happen. He had to move Herod to act as he did. He had to move Pilate to make the decisions he did. He had to lead the Jews to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. He had to use the sinful desires of men and men and probably women to spit on him and to beat him and to curse him and to blaspheme him. And then there's this, Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas. He went away and confirmed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Why did Satan enter into Judas? God had to send him because it was planned. And I believe this is the last thing Satan wanted. You remember his, remember his three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Every one of those temptations was an attempt to get Jesus to bypass the cross. Because Satan knew that if Jesus completed the work on the cross, he, Satan, was a goner. So here, the very thing that Satan cannot allow to happen, he becomes a major player in pulling off. Because God uses him for any purpose he can to bring glory to himself and to bring good for us. The cross is undoubtedly the worst sin ever committed by mankind. And yet it was totally planned by God. In another song a few minutes earlier, you sang, you sang, by the Father's good decree, you delivered me. What did you think when you sang those words? This is what those words mean. Loved ones, when we come to the table this morning, we come to the most stark display of God as king of the universe, totally in control of all things, demonstrating what we have been talking about this morning. Nothing happens except through and by his will. And all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And why did he do this ghastly act? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the bottom line personal testimony of myself when I come to the end of something like this. If God not only sovereignly owns me, but also is that good and that gracious and that perfect and that loving, then I don't want to run my own life. Finish with this hymn by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy. 
and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Father, at times you are incomprehensible. And on our good days, we wouldn't want it any other way. But when things get tough, when it hurts, oh my. At those times, Father, would you please pour the oil of of comfort and love all over our souls? Would you speak words of peace and understanding to our hearts? Would you fill our minds with the truth that you as a father, as a father, really do understand? And would you strengthen our resolve to trust you no matter what? Would you help us to see that behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. In the name of Jesus, who certainly faced your frowning providence, he cried out, is there any way to get out of this? But trusted your smiling face, but not my will, but yours be done. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you come to the table and remember the love of your father for you because his frowning providence was laid on his son.